Good morning, everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, I was here really early because I was nervous about uh, the Oxford Half Marathon. Uh, am I right? hope most of you have run that already before coming <laughs> to church. That's right. Good. Okay. Well, show it by being uh, with us this morning and uh, share the energy uh, with us. Um, so my name is Krish, uh, which is short for Krishna. And uh, yeah, that's not a typical evangelical uh, first name. Uh, I was brought up uh, in a mixed faith family. Uh, my mother uh, was born in India. And her father was born in Ireland. Uh, my dad was born in Malaysia, but his dad was born in Sri Lanka. Uh, and uh, so I'm kind of confused about who to cheer for, particularly in cricket matches. And uh, my wife is uh, half English and half Welsh. Uh, we have at the moment five uh, children at home, uh, most of whom, uh, well, some of whom share our kind of genetic ancestry. We've got an adopted daughter who's half English and half Jamaican, and uh, we have a foster baby, and uh, she's dead cute, absolutely lovely, and uh, she has, uh, well, uh, all sorts of ethnicities in her heritage. And uh, so again, when it comes to the Olympics, who do you cheer for? Uh, we just consider our family the United Nations. <laughs> and um, I became a Christian through uh, the impact of a whole number of different factors. One was my mum teaching me to pray uh, as a young child, kneeling by my bed. Uh, another was a Salvation Army band uh, marching up and down uh, the hill outside my house. And I went to Sunday school it was a, as a result of that. Uh, I was the only kid not wearing kind of Sunday uh, at Salvation Army uniform, but also the only person that was brown anywhere in the entire uh, Salvation Army in the South that I knew of. And, uh, but I was made to feel very welcome by all sorts of people. Uh, I was also impacted by uh, John Wimber. Uh, he did a uh, kind of conference down in the Brighton Centre. And uh, one of my best mates at school became a Christian as a result of a John Wimber event. And he went into school the next day and uh, asked if he could give an announcement to the whole class. And uh, the teacher said, yeah, that's fine. Nipped out for a quick smoke, uh, leaving my friend, a 15-year-old friend, in charge of the class. And uh, he announced that he'd become a friend of God and uh, said, if any of you want to become a friend of God, uh, you can do it and uh, come and talk to me afterwards. And uh, I went to see him straight away and I said, what are you doing? You know, I've been a Christian, uh, you know, been going to church since I was a young lad because I go to the Salvation Army and I haven't told anybody in the class about it. And he said, Chris, if you knew the God that I met last night, you wouldn't be able to be silent about it. And that really struck me. And uh, he helped me come to a kind of uh, more of a personal relationship with God. And uh, we started to do our best to share our faith. But this morning, I've received a lovely uh, welcome from you. I was here before uh, most people. I couldn't actually get into the building because um, the door wasn't yet open. But as soon as I got in, uh, I've been offered fig rolls. I've been offered uh, coffee three times. People have been offering me coffee. And uh, the welcome has just been wonderful. So uh, thank you for that. Sadly, when many people think about the church, they do not think about us as a welcoming community. And if you could stick my slide on, is that going to just work seamlessly? Yeah, great. And uh, the title I was asked to speak on this morning is Christianity is good news for the whole of society. Well, sadly, that's not how most people think about us. And I'm really pleased we've got the, uh, the youth in uh, with us this morning uh, because, um, yeah, good to see you, yeah. 
uh, they did a survey in the United States. And they asked young people between 16 and 29. That's quite an age range. I'm glad uh, 29-year-olds are still young people. Good to see you, students. Uh, You're still young. Well done for getting up before lunchtime. (laughs) Great to see you. Um, They asked 16 to 29-year-olds, what do you think about when you hear the word Christian or even when you hear the word evangelical Christian? What do people think about? I wonder, have a little chat with your neighbour. Might as well get used to this. You're going to do a little bit of this this morning. What do you think the top three things that when 16 to 29-year-olds in the States were asked about when they heard the word Christian or evangelical Christian, what were the top three things that people said? We're talking about people that don't go to church regularly, people outside of the church. What do you think the top three things people thought about us were? Are you with me? Have a little chat and uh, I'll share the, the survey results with you. Um, okay, um, we'll let you guys go first, students, and we'll come to young people and then we'll ask the rest of you. Is that okay? Uh, and if you're not a student sat over here, brilliant. I'm glad we're all mixing up. Uh, anyone here want to hazard a guess what some of the, the things that were said? Uh, word association almost with the church? Have a go, stick your hand up. Who's going first? Don't be shy, it's okay. Yeah, go on. Judgmental was in the top three. Some people go, yes! Come on! 16 to 29 year olds, they think we're judgmental. Brilliant. Excellent. I'm going to come over, okay, you want to, I'm going to come over here. Um, anyone over here want to guess what people thought about us? They're all pointed at each other. You have a go, tell me. Have you got an idea? Suffering. We bring suffering, or we are suffering. Could be a bit of both. Okay, I will hold that one. Okay, uh, wider church. What do you what do you think? What do you think people thought about us? Sixteen twenty. Yes. Close-minded. Yeah, that was up there. Narrow-minded. Yeah, good. Boring. I, it was. It was there, but I don't think it was in the top three. Yeah. What was it? Fanatic. Yeah, I think that was a perception. Again, not top three. Anyone else with a different answer? Yeah. Bigoted. Bigoted. Yeah, that was there. Yeah. Fundamentalist. Okay, look, I'll show you. So the survey was called Unchristian, and it was done by a friend of mine called David Kinnaman. And uh, here it is. The number one, probably, sorry, maybe if you can't see it, the number one thing was anti homosexual. Kind of fits in with your bigoted piece, doesn't it? 91% tick that as a uh, perception of the church. Uh, Second to that was judgmental, that was 87%. Hypocritical, 83%. Sheltered or old-fashioned, 78%. Too political, that's interesting, isn't it? They might not say that about us over here, um, because you've kind of got the moral majority thing going on in the States, haven't you? Uh, And then lastly, proselytizers, um, insensitive to others and not genuine, we're kind of Bible-bashing people. How do you feel about that? It is, it is depressing, isn't it? That that was the general perception of how people saw us, our family, our brothers and sisters in the States. Uh, no one's done the study over here yet. I don't think it would be massively different, sadly. Now, what's happened to us? Why do people think about these things when they think about us as God's people? If, if they come here, they get a welcome, don't they? 
If they read scriptures, we're going to do in a minute, they'll know that Jesus' public profile, even his enemies, what did they taunt him with? They said he was a friend of sinners. This massive mismatch between public perception of who the church is and what the church is about to who Jesus was, that's a real problem for us. And some people have said, well, you know what we could do? We could rebrand. Now let's rebrand Christianity so that we can get closer to these, uh, well, away from this. When I was a lad, there was, uh, there was a bit of a problem in my house. Uh, because just at the time uh, when I was kind of interested in pursuing the opposite sex, uh, my dad did something pretty bad uh, to spoil my chances of ever getting a girlfriend. Uh, he bought a Skoda. <laughs> now, some of you are not laughing because you don't know the history of Skoda. Skoda was a car um, that was deemed to be just a kind of a joke. In fact, every child in every playground in the UK had at least three Skoda jokes up their sleeves. All right, let's see if you know any. Uh, what do you call an open top or cabriolet Skoda? Do you know what you call that? A skip. That's right. How do you double the price of a Skoda? Fill it up with petrol. Yeah, good. Good. Uh, why does a Skoda have a heated rear window? To keep your hands warm when you're pushing it. That's right. What do you call a Skoda with two exhaust pipes? A wheelbarrow. Every kid in every playground knew those Skoda jokes. Now, let's just do a little sample. Did you know any of those jokes, young people? No. Something has happened. You know, the oral transmission has been stopped. Why? Because Skoda became quite a good car. If you own a Skoda, you don't have to live with the shame of that (laughs) anymore. It's all gone. It's been wiped away. Why? Well, Skoda had a a choice, didn't they, of what they would do in the kind of 80s and 90s. They could have rebranded their car, but they didn't. They could have done what Kentucky Fried Chicken did. In the 80s and 90s, KFC had a problem. Every time you mentioned their name, you said the word fried. When when people were getting interested in kind of cholesterol and healthy living, (laughs) saying the word fried every time you said Kentucky Fried Chicken was a problem. And so Kentucky Fried Chicken rebranded. They became KFC. Genius. No one had to say fried anymore. I'm going down to KFC. Now, do you know how the, the KFC menu changed after they rebranded? It didn't. In fact, it got worse. <laughs> you can now buy a double Zinger Tower burger, which has got more calories than a family of four needs for a week, probably. <laughs> they didn't change anything. They just changed the name. And some people say, well, that's what we need to do as a church. You know, just change the name. Stop using the word evangelical or, or, or Christian. Start calling ourselves Jesus people. That will distance ourselves from these negative perceptions that people have. I don't think we need to have a KFC approach to change here. I think we need a Skoda approach to change. Skoda did a deal with Volkswagen. You know, they became 
a, an economical way of buying a very good car. It's, it's Volkswagen technology and Volkswagen um, uh, reliability, but at a reasonable priced package. They didn't change what they were called. They changed who they were. They delivered something of worth and value. Now, what we need to do is become more Christ-like so that people won't think this about us anymore. The reality is there is some fire behind some of this smoke. Some of the way that we've been behaving as churches and as Christians have given people reason to believe that. And we think, well, that doesn't need to be the case. We can be like Christ, a friend of sinners. How do you find a way to be like Jesus who welcomes sinners and yet didn't welcome their sin, did he? He found a way of welcoming people even if they didn't, he didn't affirm what they were doing. Does, does that make sense? That's a really tough line to walk. But that's what I think we need to kind of get our heads around this morning. Now, I was asked to look at Luke's Gospel. Uh, I think they expected us to look at a passage from Luke's Gospel, but I thought, let's do the whole thing. <laughs> and I know you're worried now because, you know, you've got things to do this afternoon. So we're going to divide and conquer uh, to make this possible, okay? Um, so your team over here, okay, you need access to a Bible, okay? And um, a friend of mine said, uh, you know, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, switch it on now. <laughs> so feel free to use electronic versions of the Bible, or if you've already memorized it all, game on, good on you. <laughs> I want you to have a scan through Luke's Gospel, okay? And um, that could be flicking through, that could be kind of using your memory. And, and I want you to think of different groups of people, okay? But we're all going to be doing this, okay? But um, different groups of people that Jesus welcomed that wouldn't normally have been welcomed. Are you with me? All right. So the, I'm going to give you a specific task. I want you to look at how Luke's gospel deals with um, Jesus' approach to the old and the young. Does that make sense? The elderly and children. What does Jesus do in Luke's gospel that's unusual in the way that he relates to those two groups of people? Are, are you, do you understand what I'm asking? Try and come up with two or maybe three examples. That would be fantastic. Um, you guys in the middle, I want you to be scanning through Luke's gospel as well. Um, and I want you to be looking at rich and poor. Okay? How does Jesus engage with rich and poor? How is Jesus good news for both the rich and the poor? Does that make sense? All right, And you guys and girls, you're going to be looking at women and men. Okay? How does Jesus engage with women and men in a way that was countercultural and welcoming and usually good news to those groups of people? Does that make sense? Good. And lastly, but no means least, uh, you guys, can you think about how Jesus engage, engages with saints or, or the kind of religious elite and also sinners? Does that make sense? The kind of social misfits and the outcasts. Are you with me? Okay, you have a couple of minutes uh, to try and come up with some examples of how Jesus deals with young and old. That's you guys. Rich and poor, women and men, saints and sinners. Are you with me? If you have a huge Bible with a concordance in the back, game on to you. Well done. Okay, let's talk. Just before we get into it, let me tell you why I'm doing it this way. So, I've, I've just got a new job. Two new jobs. That would seem greedy, wouldn't it? Yeah. 
Um, so half of my life is now um, involved in theological education. Uh, I'm working for London School of Theology. And uh, one of our finest graduates is sitting on the front row. <laughs> Excellent. Nine years of sheer hard work, but he got it, and he graduated this summer. So congratulations to you. And uh, so I believe that, that the scripture is the word of God, and it transforms us. And, and sadly, sometimes when we read it, we read it in kind of fridge magnet-sized chunks. And, and that can be unhealthy for us. Because you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, can't you? If you just take one line. It's a bit like quoting political speeches. You can make them say whatever you want as long as you take the headline that you're interested in. And sometimes we need to do a bit more of a kind of a panoramic view to see how the whole flow of something fits in. It's a bit like me. I'm on my bike uh, a lot of the time, uh, cycling around London. And um, I'm normally pretty focused on the road ahead, potholes, looking out for those and traffic junctions. And I don't have time to kind of lift my eyes up and get the panoramic view of what's going on. So I sometimes cycle past the Houses of Parliament um, or Buckingham Palace. And I don't have time to enjoy the view because I'm so focused on what's in front of me. And sometimes our focus on Scripture is too narrow in that we just take a few verses and we don't get the panoramic view. And so sometimes it's worth doing that bigger picture stuff just to see how it all fits together. Does that make sense? And Luke is not just a collection of interesting stories. He has decided what to record about the life of Jesus. Because as John says, if, if you were to write down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room for all, all of the writings in the whole, uh, you know, whole of humanity. And so he's been selective because he wants to get across something important about who Jesus is. And if you know Luke's gospel well, you will know it is one of the most welcoming gospels you can imagine. And so I'm deliberately picking out some themes for you to kind of appreciate about what Luke's doing. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's start with you guys. You're the rich and poor. Let's start with the rich. Can you think of how Jesus engages with the rich and uh, why that might be good news? Well, that might be harder, but have a look. How does he engage with the rich? Anyone over here? Who's going first? Get in there with the easy answers. Go on. Yes, good, good, good. So, he, so he's not, he, the parable of the talents doesn't kind of say that it's wrong to have um, uh, money or resources. It's how you use those resources for the kingdom of God. Uh, so that's helpful, good. Anything else he has to say about rich? Yep. Good, good, good. So you know the Zacchaeus story? I love that story. I'm a short person, so I relate to it <laughs> at all sorts of levels. Ha, ha. <laughs> And uh, Zacchaeus is, is, is honoured by Jesus by a visit to his house, even though he has got rich, probably through ill-gotten gain. And um, Zacchaeus is shown that um, it, life is not just about making money. And uh, that, 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 that the rat race is not the whole of who he is. And through the grace of Jesus, he's, he gets his eyes opened about that, doesn't he? And then he redistributes the wealth, in fact, in an overly generous way, which is fantastic. Good. Any other rich stories in Luke's gospel? There is a rich young ruler. Yes. He did. So the rich young ruler, Luke 18, uh, Jesus looks at him, says he loves him, uh, but has some tough words for him. And actually the rich young ruler is insecure. Because the first thing that the rich young ruler says to Jesus is, what must I do to be saved? 
you know, he's, he's not convinced that through his own righteousness or his wealth that he has security. And so Jesus is saying to him, well, what you're looking for, or what you think you can get through your, your, you know, your religious righteousness, but also through your power and your money, um, you're still hungry for that. Uh, uh, let me show you where you can find what you're really looking for, that security that you want. And yes, Jesus does bring harsh words, but sometimes if you're a medic, you have to say tough things to people, don't you? You know, telling someone that they've got cancer, that you're not doing that out of spite, it's because you desire to serve them that they might be able to change. So sometimes Jesus has to say really tough things, particularly to the rich, actually, in Luke's Gospel, driven by love that they might find the truth in him. That's where the parable of the rich fool fits in, as well, in Luke 12. Now, the fact that you're told about the rich fool, the guy that built bigger barns and that his life was going to be taken from him that night, do you remember? The fact that Jesus is telling that story is a warning. If there was nothing that rich people could do, there would have been no point to that story. So he's warning them because it's not too late. Your riches do not exclude you from the kingdom of God, but there's something you can do to be welcomed into God's family. Even the first verse of Luke's gospel is written to most excellent Theophilus. That sounds like a pretty well-to-do person to me. And he's writing to him to persuade him and help him understand the grace of God. So rich people are in view of Luke's gospel. All right, come on quickly. About the poor. Luke's gospel's got quite a lot to say about the poor. Yeah, go for it. The shepherds, the the kind of outcast, the nomadic kind of wandering people. Uh, Today we might consider them like the travelers of the day, mightn't they? But they are welcomed. They get to be some of the first people to see, you know, the baby Jesus. Uh, the saviour of the world. That's fantastic. Good. Anyone else? Yeah. Lazarus. Yeah, Luke 16. Uh, the rich man doesn't get a name, but Lazarus does. Lazarus is, is someone who remembers God. And when it comes to the final judgment, we realise that God's doing something revolutionary, isn't he? Those that are invisible in society are actually valuable to God. If you listen in Mary's prayer, we're coming up to Christmas, it's called the Magnificat, which sounds like a great name to call a feline uh, kind of thing. (laughs) But in the Magnificat, Mary Mary is singing praise to God who will bring down the rich and raise up the poor. God is doing something absolutely revolutionary. And so in an age and a day where the poor were to be out of sight and out of mind, Jesus says, you're welcome. You're welcomed into the family. It's for you too that you can know eternal life and you can know God. So, very powerful stuff. Okay, how about, let's do women and men. Oh, I had a little slide. Not that it matters very much. Um, how about women and men? Were you women and men? Yes. Yes. Yes, so there were some wealthy women who were giving money to support Jesus on the road. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, if if today, um, you know, it's it's relatively controversial, even within churches, isn't it? Roles of men and women. Um, But you've got this idea that the women were the providers of Jesus' ministry. Jesus wasn't too proud to receive funding from women. That would have been unusual in his day. Any other ways you think women are... Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, yes, very good. Lots of specific instances of women that were healed. There's often a lot of talk about widows. And widows were some of the most vulnerable people in society because just the way it worked, no social services. So who will care for someone who is without the kind of um, earning power of her husband? Who will care for them? Well, Jesus heals or offers them as a positive example. Remember the widow's mite when she gives a few pennies, but she's elevated. Here's a model of what it means to be a believer. And he lifts up uh, what would be considered a poor, insignificant widow woman and says, you want to be like her. That's powerful. Again, in a patriarchal society, that was incredibly subversive. Yeah, at the back, anything? Yes. First witnesses of the resurrection were women. In a day and age where a woman's testimony was worth half of a man's testimony in a court of law. But he trusted women to be the tellers of the most significant, powerful message you could imagine. Well, how about Mary and Martha? Did you touch that one? Martha, sorry, Mary is commended for sitting as a disciple at Jesus' feet. Again, in a society where women often weren't educated, he's encouraging Mary to be learning. That was incredibly powerful. Any last ones you want to say? Yep. The lost coin, that's right. Tells stories from a women's, uh, women's point of view, really helpful. So what's Jesus saying? He says, look, some of you women, uh, you've been written off by society, you're you're seen to be an insignificant widow, you're not in God's eyes. You could actually be a a paradigm of what it means to be a believer. Um, Some of you women, you've been caught in um, some pretty destructive ways of living. Mary Magdalene, for one. Or the sinful woman that anoints Jesus' feet, do you remember? You know, you actually understand grace better than some of these religious people. And people need to be more like you. That was incredibly welcoming. So Jesus welcomes the rich, the poor, men and women. How about, uh, who are you going to do? You were going to do sinners and saints. Come on then, what you got? Very good. So, um, as we were saying a little bit under the women bit, isn't it? So, women that have been trapped in a certain way of living um, are now used as models uh, for what spirituality will be. In fact, of that story, it's told wherever the gospel is preached, that story will be told. Wow. Go on. Good. Let me push you on that. So someone, um, someone, what's your name? Catherine said, Jesus doesn't change the way that he relates to people. Um, you're right. You know, my mum my mom used to say that God is no respecter of persons. You know, he doesn't care about your, your background or your, um, your influence. He will speak to you with grace. But in the, in, the, um, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus does have a different tone of voice towards the religious elites than he does towards sinners. To the religious elites, he is trying to shake them out of their complacency. And so in Luke 11, he's got all these woes. Woe to you, religious people. You look good on the outside, but inside you're all falling apart. Say again? You're white in sepulchres. You're you're like a grave that looks good on the outside, but underneath you've got rotten flesh. 
Now again, I think that's part of the mercy of God that he's warning people just because you're religious, don't think you're right with God. It could all just be a facade. But to the sinners, he's offering welcome. He adapts his message a little bit, doesn't he? Because the religious people think they're okay just because they're religious and the, and the sinners have written themselves off. We can't be acceptable to God. We bro- we're too broken. We're too damaged. God can't love us. And so the most famous parable that we all know of Jesus, and, and it's a collection of three, isn't it? And it all starts from, in Luke 15, that some of the religious people were grumbling that Jesus was spending time with the sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus tells the lost coin and the lost sheep and then the lost sons as a way to say, no, there is a welcome for you. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad your history, you are, you are not written off by God because of the worst thing you've ever done. There's still grace available for you, whatever it is. And we've been thinking this morning already about the Father heart of God welcoming us home, embracing us. And actually Jesus is, is merciful to the religious elites by warning them, but offering grace to them, but also grace to those that have ruled themselves out. Okay, last but by no means least, let's come to uh, old and young. Can you think of how Jesus welcomes the old and the young? Can you think of any examples? We'll go here first. Come on, young guys. Have you got any? Someone else? Yeah, go on. Keep it in the family. Don't be shy. Shall I call on the students first? Okay, come on. Students and other people sitting over here. Uh, what do you want to say? Old and young, yes. Um, Jesus says, Yeah, that's right. Luke 18 is really interesting. When you look at Luke's gospel, there are some deliberate, what you could call juxtapositions, things that he puts next to each other for contrast. So in Luke 18, it starts off by saying um, the disciples had basically stopped these children from coming near Jesus because their mums and dads uh, wanted Jesus to bless them. And uh, basically, the disciples had run interference and said, no, 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 Jesus is too busy, stay away. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's for such as these. You know, I, I came for such as these. Don't bar them from coming. In fact, if you don't enter the kingdom of God like a child, you don't enter at all. So again, in a society, the disciples were kind of playing to the norms, weren't they? In a society that didn't value children, Jesus did. And he welcomes them into his presence. But the next thing is um, the rich young ruler. And the disciples are going, oh yes, sir, come this way. You know, come before Jesus. And they're expecting Jesus to kind of do the meet and greet and nice to say, hi, how are you? But he goes, look, no, 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 you are not ready for the kingdom of God. You still lack. So Jesus is breaking all the traditions and the taboos that uh, were there in his society. Could any others, rich and, uh, sorry, old and young, any other old and young examples? Mary was very young. Yeah, probably just a teenager. And she's given the title, you know, um, uh, most blessed of all women. I mean, that's huge. It's a bit like Malala getting uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. That's a huge honour, isn't it? To be put onto Mary, a young teenage girl. God valuing youth. But what about when Jesus was presented in the temple? You've got Anna, an 84-year-old widow who only was married for seven years and then her husband died. So she's been living, you know, for decades with, with you know, no provision from a man in her life. And yet she's a prophetess. And she's one of the first to see who Jesus is. This elderly woman grasps it. 
And similarly, Simeon, Simeon's been waiting his whole life for, for God to sort out the problems in Israel as the Romans have invaded. And he says something, now I've seen Jesus, I'm ready to die. That tells me he's probably quite an old man. But he's, he's, these are valued elderly people in God's economy. Any more you want to say? Elizabeth was really old and they're blessed with children, aren't they? In fact, Luke's gospel tells the birth narrative of Jesus and his childhood in a way that none of the other gospels do. In fact, Mark and John don't even bother mentioning Jesus being a child. So you've got this affirmation of childhood within Luke's writing of Jesus. Jesus as a young person in the temple putting to shame the wisdom of the older people. And uh, often we say, out of the mouths of, of babes and infants comes great truth. And so we want to value you in the life of this church. There are things sometimes you will see as children and young people that we older guys and girls are going to miss. And so your voice needs to be heard. So it's great, great that you're with us this morning. So do you get this picture of what's going on? Which group of people did Jesus come for? Which segment of society does the gospel reach out to? It's everybody, isn't it? It's old and young, it's men and women, it's rich and poor, it's the religious elite and it's the sinners. It's all of us that God invites into the family. Now our society in the UK and around the world is more divided than ever. It's divided in all sorts of ways, particularly around class and, and, and income levels. There are certain places that, that people are not welcome. I don't know if you saw this week, uh, but another university kind of put out some cages to stop homeless people sleeping near warm air ducts. We might have seen a few months ago these spikes that were put up uh, outside posh um, apartments because they didn't want homeless people kind of messing stuff up. We're a divided society. But we're not in Christ's family. We're supposed to be one people. It's supposed to be something prophetic, not just about the message that we bring, but the community that we are. When this gets worked out in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Ephesians, you see the kind of church that God expected us to be. In the book of Ephesians, you get this bit at the end, it's called a household code. And it addresses all sorts of people. It addresses women and men, uh, parents and children, slaves and free. Now that's the powerful bit for me, slaves and free. In the ancient world, the division between a slave and a free person is bigger than the division that divides the Queen of England from a homeless person. Because at least both of those people agree the other's human. But in the ancient world, a slave was an object to be owned. But somehow, in the church, they'd become brothers and sisters to one another. So I want you to know, you know, here this morning... That you are welcome, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your background, you're welcome here because we are followers of Jesus. And if Jesus welcomes you, who am I? Or who's any of us to turn you away? Now sadly, as I travel the UK, we are still a pretty divided church. I go to black churches and white churches. I go to churches aimed at poor people and I go to churches aimed at rich people. We've kind of divided. And actually there's something prophetic when we don't divide over those normal lines that divide society, we show something of the coming kingdom of God. 
Because you know, when the kingdom comes, there isn't going to be, you know, rich new heavens and new earth, and poor new heavens and new earth, and, you know, um, children's one, and, and, and elderly people's ones, or male heaven, and, and you know, female earth. No, no, no. We become one body singing praise to the one saviour of mankind. And so what, what we do here matters. Not just what we speak about, but how we treat one another matters. I want to share with you one way, one really practical way, we're trying to change the way that people engage with this issue of division in society. And um, it actually started, the, the first thing we ever did around this was, was, the first public thing we ever did about this was here, in this building, um, about two years ago. We, um, some of you will remember it because we had 400 helium balloons at the front. Were you, any of you here when we had 400 helium balloons? Some of you. God, a lot of you have changed. It's good, nice to see you. We, um, we did Adoption Sunday here. And uh, you were the, the church that kind of welcomed us. And we did a bit of press. And we, we literally got 400 helium balloons, attached them to two chairs. I was hoping we could get it to fly, <laughs> like in the film Up. But it didn't kind of work. But those 400 balloons were to represent the 400 children in care in Oxfordshire. And uh, we, we launched something there. And the next year, which was last year, uh, we had 200 churches take part. So thank you for kicking it off. 200 churches took part last year. And we're hoping for even more this year. But we started a movement to say to the church, this welcome that God has shown us, whatever our background, we need to be demonstrating that really practically by opening up our homes and our families to those that need it. And so we started something called the Home for Good campaign. I'll show you a little video. Um, I'll, I'll give you three challenges of what you can do. And then I'll lead us in a response about where we need to be in terms of God's great welcoming love that's good for the whole of society. So have a look at this um, little video. There are thousands of children in the UK. I'm not talking about Africa. I'm not talking about South America in the UK that don't know a secure and loving home. And I wonder how God feels about that. We've read about him, haven't we, in Luke's Gospel. He's the God that calls everyone. He's the one that sends the servants into the highways and byways and says, bring them in. Let them touch, let them feel, let them experience my hospitality. And so if there are children without families that are able to care for them and love them in the UK... Which group of people has God empowered and gifted to make a difference into that? To be honest, the church is being left behind. There are people out there that don't know the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, don't know that a loving and supportive church family around them that are opening up their homes and open up their hearts to children in care. And uh, sometimes the church is willing to get involved by wagging a finger and telling which group of people shouldn't be allowed to adopt or foster. I say we don't have any right to do that. But we should be A, cheering them on and helping them, and B, doing it ourselves. We had a, a boy, a big boy, come and stay with us. He turned up on our doorstep. Uh, he was taller than me. Uh, he was in his early teens. And uh, when he came to our house, he was all kind of huddled over. Uh, couldn't look anyone straight in the eye. He had a big pink suitcase that his uh, social worker had brought him to stick all his worldly possessions in. And then there he was on our doorstep. 
And uh, we, you know, we welcome him in the lounge and we try to sit him down and, and have a chat and make small talk. And uh, we're struggling, I'm struggling, not getting anything out of him. And then um, my eldest boys, they were, I think they were maybe 13 and 12 at the time. They used a therapeutic tool that I wasn't aware of. Xbox 360. <laughs> they challenged this boy to a game of FIFA, football game. And this boy, he was an Arsenal supporter. And for some bizarre reason, so is my eldest son. But this lad, he got to be at Arsenal that night. And my two boys were Man United. And uh, somehow Arsenal won 5-0. But I tell you, as a dad, there was something special listening to my boys going, good shot, mate. Well done. How did you get around my keeper? They are extending welcome to this lad. I couldn't be prouder. He's beginning to soften up a little bit. And it's dinner time. And uh, because it's an emergency placement, we don't know what to cook. Because they don't come with little menu cards. And so we just cooked everything we had in the freezer. (laughs) And it turns out, chicken Kievs, that's what he liked. So guess what we had for dinner five nights in a row. (laughs) Because we just wanted him to feel at home. Give him whatever it takes. Then it's a trip down the... um, Sainsbury's, because even though he's got this huge suitcase, he hasn't got a toothbrush. And so I go, and I'm, I'm like you know, father hen, if you like, and there are my th- three big chicks behind me. And uh, we're going down the, the, the aisles, and I'm, I can't find toothbrushes. And uh, then this big laddie goes, you don't come here often, do you, Chris? I'm thinking, brilliant, he's cracking a joke. He's beginning to feel at home. And in that kind of small little act of hospitality, I am feeling connected to God. I'm feeling as close to God as I do when we sing and worship together. Because I can sense something of God's Father heart of love in what I'm able to offer in this small little way. That's what God did for me and you, didn't he? We were broken. We maybe sinned against as well as sinners. And yet God welcomed us in. He loved us. He gave us that Father's welcome home into the family. And all I'm doing in some tiny little way is passing that on to a child in need. Now, why am I telling you about this one story? It's just one lad, right? You you helped him a little bit. You know, who knows? Uh, He moved on into long-term care. Uh, We hear from him infrequently, but every now and again we hear from him. Why do I tell you about this one story? Those numbers on the wall earlier... They've got worse since we made the video. The numbers are now 6,000 children waiting for adoption. Most of those kids are not babies. They're older children, sibling groups. Um, some of them have had abuse and neglect in their background. Some of them have got physical and emotional challenges. This isn't Anna Green Gables or Despicable Me or Little Annie. This is tough stuff. 6,000 kids waiting. And 9,000 more foster families needed. Why do I tell you about one lad? Well, you know the very old story, don't you? Of the boy walking along a beach, seeing a thousand washed-up starfish left behind by the tide, drying out in the sun. Picks one up, doesn't he? Runs to the shore. I don't know why it is in this story. It's always an older person that intercepts him. And he says, why do you bother? It doesn't make a difference. Remember what the boy says? Makes a difference to this one, and he chucks it back in. But that's an old story. Look, nowadays... If a, a teenage lad was walking down the beach, he might have, actually, he probably wouldn't have one of these. He might have, but he'd have a smartphone, wouldn't he? And on his smartphone, he'd have, what I'm trying to find, a camera app. 
You might as well smile. I'm going to take the picture. And, and he would do what I'm going to do now. He'd take a picture of those thousand washed up starfish. And what would he do next? Hello, young people. Make sure we've got parental permission before I put this anywhere. <laughs> what would he do? He'd post that picture on Facebook, on Twitter, on Snapchat. I don't know why it would destruct after seven seconds. Um, on, on, what's the other ones you use? Instagram. He'd tell all of his mates about all those washed up starfish, wouldn't he? And do you know what? I reckon it wouldn't take him long. I reckon in an hour or two, he'd have a thousand people down that beach each one picking up a starfish. And you wouldn't just make a difference to this one. You can make a difference to all of them. That's why we launched Home for Good. We worked out. Our network, our database, when we kind of kick into some of the agencies that we've been working with, it's about 15,000 churches. How's your maps? It's only one family per church that steps forward for fostering or adoption. The rest of the church wrapping around them in ongoing support and love and the church could make a difference to every child that needs a home for good. That's doable, isn't it? And we've begun to see it happen. We tried to do something in Oxford and we got a little way. But our friends down in Southampton kind of put us to shame. A bunch of churches got together, went to see their local authority. What can we do to help? How can we serve? Turns out they need 40 foster carers to meet the need in Southampton. One of the church leaders had been in care himself and he says, all right, game on, let's do it. So I'm at a meeting in a room a bit like this, but filled with the MPs, uh, the, the mayor, the head of social services, loads of church leaders. And he's made a plaque and on it he's put 40 front door keys. And he's put a little Bible text. God sets the lonely in families. Not orphanages, not care homes. God sets the lonely in families. And he tells his story and people are beginning to connect. And he says, look, we the church of Southampton, we will find you social services, 40, 40 carers. So they're in social services in Southampton on the wall. Is that promise? The church is good news for the whole of society. It's good news for all those kids that are going to need homes and help. That was last April. Last time I spoke to him, 86 families had stepped forward from across Southampton. Social services are going, wow, this church, it doesn't just talk a good game, it's up for it. It's going to do something to make a difference. People have started to extend their homes to try and make more bedrooms available um, that they might welcome more children in. Some of the poorer families who haven't got the money to do that, wealthier members of the church have said, you know what, we'll underwrite the rent for you so you can rent a bigger property so that you can do this because we think God's in this. That's the church. Stepping up, beginning to live out the love of Jesus practically in the lives of people that really need it. Does does that make sense? A long time ago, the church was a tiny, tiny little splinter group. A Jewish sect many people had written it off as. And then it exploded to become the biggest religion in the Western world. And a sociologist called Rodney Stark tried to figure out, well, why? What happened? Why did the church suddenly become from this tiny little group to this huge group? And he pins it down to a change that happened in the second century, when plagues were ripping through Europe, particularly amongst the big cities. And it's where the expression comes from, run for the hills. 
because the medics thought the air was bad in the cities and they'd get the plague too. So they ran for the hills to get into the clean air, leaving the city to die. But Christians, mostly from the lower classes, slaves and and other people like that, they decided to stay and not just weather the storm, but open their homes to the sick and the needy and the dying. And, and this was crossing some of the familial lines and the class boundaries. They tended and loved and cared for everybody. Rodney Stark, who's not yet a Christian, I don't think, says that was the tipping point. That was when the gospel became real in the Roman Empire. That's when people were beginning to take notice. These Christians, they don't just talk a good game. They live it. And they welcome whoever into their households. Not just into the church buildings for a few hours, but into their homes to offer the hospitality of God. Friends, we've seen, haven't we, the hospitality of God in Luke's Gospel to all sorts of people. It's time now for us, the church, as individual families, as individual households, to live out that hospitality to a watching world. I've got one last video, and then we're going to invite the, uh, the worship band up to kind of close things out. I like this video, and you might think of yourselves as being one or other of the groups of people that are going to be in it. It's a video about welcome. And uh, you might not know this morning, in your heart, that you are welcomed into God's family. You've been on the fringes of church or the fringes of Christianity. You don't yet know that God wants you to be his adopted son and daughter. That he wants to call you his precious child. And I want you to know that today. And give you an opportunity that you are welcome. But actually there are others of us that know that full well that we're welcomed into God's family. And it's time we step up to become welcomers. To our neighbours, to our friends, to kids in care, to the elderly around us. We need to be welcoming these people into our lives. That they could taste what we've experienced. So watch this video and then we'll close out our time together. Do you know you're welcome? You're welcomed into God's family. There's a whole host of angels and family family members wanting to welcome you into the household. Your family. Whatever your past, whatever your history, you're adopted. And if you don't know that this morning, please come and have a chat. Come and talk to me or some of the leaders here. Let, Let yourself be enveloped by the love of a gracious God who welcomes you home. There are thousands of people that don't know the love of God in their lives. And maybe God's calling you to be part of the welcome team. Not just here at church, but everywhere we go. Bringing the welcome of God to our lost and needy world. Maybe God's calling some of us here to step forward to be foster carers and adopted carers. Brilliant. Love to chat to you. I'll stand over there. We can find out some more. Or maybe there are other vulnerable, lonely people around you that God's asking you to be a means of grace to, to welcome them into the family of God. Let me hand over to the worship team now and Grace as she takes us on. Thanks for listening.